folks, welcome back to the Anthony Gordon Show. And it's it's actually a very nostalgic show for me because the very esteemed guest is not only a former professor of mine uh, at the Harvard Law School, someone who I would call also a friend, but it's uh, it's really an honor to introduce what I would believe is possibly the the most prominent lawyer in America, if not the world, Professor Alan Dershowitz. Alan, welcome to the Anthony Gordon Show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to see you again. I'm not going to call on you today. You're my former. <laughs> you can call on me. <laughs> so I, I am. I have no doubt, Alan, that you have been on hundreds, if not thousands, of shows. But I, being the contrarian that I am, I'm not sure how many people start off by thanking you which I'd like to do on, on actually for on two counts, the debt of gratitude that I owe to you. Uh, firstly goes back to, I believe the fall of 1989. I was walking down the hallowed halls in pound hall back at uh, my alma mater, the Harvard law school, where I believe you have had spent four decades, five, five decades five years. Yeah. It was about two, about two months before Rosh Hashanah, we crossed paths. You asked me where, where I was going for, uh, for the High Holies of Rosh Hashanah. And the net of that conversation, I'm not sure if you recall, you were instrumental in introducing me to the Boston Rebbe right. in Brookline, whose sagacious counsel really made an impact on my life. So as it did on mine, uh, Rabbi Horowitz, he was an amazing, amazing man. Amazing. And here's my second thank you. And then I want to jump right in. My second thank you, which I, I don't believe I've ever had the opportunity to, to, uh, to thank you for, goes f- fast forward to uh, 19, I believe 1995, 96. You'll, you'll probably know better than myself. Literally a day, days before the vanishing American Jew was about to go to print, get a phone call from you to myself and my co-author Richard Horowitz, um, requesting if our chart, which was basically the, right, of course I remember that. I so remember. asking, and well, at the eleventh hour, you included. I did our, our chart in the book, and I want to thank you because that that was the catalyst to me getting involved in a lot of. Uh, a lot of the speaking circuit, and I haven't stopped since. Well, I want to thank you because you let me use that chart. It was a brilliant, brilliant chart, which visually made a point that I was trying to make in my book so dramatically and so clearly that I was honored to be able to include it. So we've had a good symbiotic relationship. And if Indeed. you can give me the mark as high as the one I gave you, uh, <laughs> in my show, I'll be very happy. <laughs> No, it's it's really is it's terrific all, all these years later. So in the time we've allotted, it, it's 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 almost laughable. I asked one of the associates here, can you just print out just the, the Wikipedia of Alan Dershowitz? And he brought in a, a PhD thesis. So <laughs> I'm gonna try and focus on a few uh, just a few points which perhaps most folks don't uh, have the opportunity for you to hear uh, to hear. Alan, we we all know that we sort of products of of our nature and our nurture. How did your upbringing set the tone for becoming perhaps the most outspoken champion of civil liberties? 
Well, I grew up in the post-Holocaust world. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood with Holocaust survivors, and everybody in my neighborhood were civil libertarians. Uh, we hated Joseph McCarthy. We hated Stalin. We hated, uh, uh, obviously, Nazism. Uh, we hated uh, anything that racism, anything that uh, denied equality. It was just the most natural thing for all of us. And, you know, in school, I went to yeshiva. Yep. And, you know, in the yeshiva, they teach you about arguing and about dissenting opinions. The Talmud is the first religious book in history, yep. not to burn dissenters, but instead to honor them and right. give them places of honor in the Talmud. Their dissenting views are included, even deeply theologically disturbing views are included in the, in the Talmud. And right. so um, I grew up contentious as a wise guy. Yeah. And everybody said he's going to be a lawyer when he grows up. I was the first person in my family to go to college. Um, mm. And um, I was lucky to get into a free college. I went to Brooklyn College. And then I became a very good student. Then I got scholarships after that to Yale Law School right. and all of that. But my Jewish upbringing, my post-Holocaust upbringing, my upbringing during the civil rights period made right. it inevitable that I would become a lawyer, a civil not a professor. That took me by surprise. Really? I thought I was going to be, you know, Perry Mason. I was going to be the great defense lawyer who represented people on death row and who represented the downtrodden. I've done a lot of that. Half oh, of my but, cases are pro bono. I do half of my cases from the day I started amazing. practicing law. My first big case was a pro bono case. And now I do about 60% of my cases pro bono. And civil libertarian cases involving obscure people that nobody's ever heard of. People say, oh, he's yeah. a celebrity lawyer because they know about the five cases right. in which I've represented celebrities. They don't know about the 250 cases where I've represented poor women, poor men, Amazing. children who have been denied their due process. So the lawyer part, we understand. How did you take a left turn into academia? And if I have my facts correct, one of the youngest professors at Harvard Law School. The youngest in history, in fact, yes. I was a full professor at the age of 28, and um, it was a series of accidents. I mean, I, I became a very good student, and yeah. I got all A's, and, but a lot of people sure. get all When I was at Yale Law School, I started to write law review articles, and a couple of my law review articles became well-known. Right. And so oh, when yeah. I was 23 years old, Harvard approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in becoming a professor, and I was offered my professorship at the age of 24 and accepted it and became a professor at 25. I had many of my students were older than I was, and um, many of them have now retired, and I'm still trying to be uh, active, um, almost 82 years old, and I still Amazing. fortunately have a lot of energy, but we'll see how long that lasts. So. Let me give you an idea of why we were so excited, besides what is self-evident to, uh, to have you as a guest, Alan. One of my concerns, and I think you know this about me, is just the, the degradation I've seen of society, the breakdown of, of you know, the core family. Here you are for five decades as a professor at you know, arguably the most elite uh, group of students at Harvard Law students, over the over the fifty years, have you seen sort of the, the, the change in uh, just perception, the interaction between a professor and student, the the sense of 
maybe difference that at least I grew up with in South Africa, sort of transitioning to chutzpah, to transitioning to, mm-hmm. you know, this just doesn't seem to be a sense of, of you know, student, professor, everyone's sort of, we're all, we're all one big buddies. Well, it's interesting. When I started teaching, of course, we all wore suits and jackets. Students did. I did. Uh, they stood up when I called on them. Right. Um, they were there to learn from the professor. They knew that we had more experience and more background than they did. Sure. Uh, today, um, the students are the most entitled group of students I've ever met in my life. And I'm not only talking about white students. Uh, I'm talking about, I'm Not certainly sure. not talking about male students. All the students feel entitled. They think all views are created equal, that facts are not important, that free speech is a patriarchal, colonialist um, uh, concept to keep down other people, that due process is irrelevant. Why do you need due process if you know the truth? If a woman accuses a man of sexual misconduct, why do you need a trial? Why do you need witnesses? Why do you need evidence? Women are born genetically engineered only to tell the truth, and men, particularly white men, are genetically engineered always to lie. So why do we need to do process? Why do we need free speech or the marketplace of ideas? We know what's true and what's false based on whether it's left or center or right. If it's left, it's true. If it's center, maybe it'll become true someday, but it's false. And if it's right, it's categorically false. So why do we need education. Why do we need conflicting points of view? Uh, And if you don't believe that, just read the New York Times. Uh, The New York Times has stopped being an educational enterprise. It knows what the truth is. It presents its editorials on the front page of the New York Times. It refuses to print editorials that are different. And if they do, the editorial director gets fired. So we live in a world where today debate, discussion, dialogue has become virtually impossible. Um, as you know, and sure. you know, talk about this as well, after a 50-year career at Harvard where uh, I was never accused of doing anything improper, after 30-something, six years of marriage, a woman decided, who I never met, never heard of, to accuse me of having sex with her in places I never was, at times mm-hmm. I never uh, which I could prove. Right. And as a result of that, my life has changed. Um, I had to write a book about it, Guilt by Accusation. I want to, I want to talk about Guilt by Accusation, but I, here's what, what but do I think the, the reason is, Alan? What, what do you think the core reason, or maybe more specifically, what was the tipping point where the wheels came off and suddenly, you know, the idea of, as you say, procedure and the idea of deference when did these fundamental principles suddenly get jettisoned? And, you know, we, we seem to have, as you say, uh, is it equal playing field for all? Well, first, when I was growing up, it was pretty much the same, except it all came from the right, McCarthyism. Right. Uh, today, we have sexual McCarthyism, left-wing McCarthyism, radical McCarthyism. Yep. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the point is, if you're accused today you cannot prove your innocence. In my case, I have emails from the woman admitting she never met me, a manuscript admitting she never met me, uh, an admission on tape by her lawyer saying she was wrong, she couldn't have been in the place. Nobody cares. Facts don't matter. We live in a post-factual society. And so who would have imagined after 50 years of teaching at Harvard and mm. being 80, almost two years old, 
that the rest of my life is going to be dedicated to trying to restore my reputation and get my name back against a totally false accusation. And the woman will skate free. Even if I proved, if I had a videotape of her saying, let's make up a story about Alan Dershowitz and get a lot. If I had that videotape, she still wouldn't go to jail. So it's you, you, you preempted something, uh, Alan, and I give you kudos for that is that in our little group before the show, we were talking about Alan's legacy. How, you know, how would Alan Dershowitz want to look back at his life? And then someone stood up and said, one second, someone just threw some mud at, at, at Alan. And now he's sort of on the defense. Right. It's absurd. I mean, I, I certainly. I don't know how to be on the defense. Um, if I were a football player, I'd be the quarterback yeah. or the right receiver. I wouldn't be the defensive player because I've always thought the best defense. I wrote a book called The Best Defense. Is it- the best defense is a good offense. And I'm on the offense. Um, I am trying to put this woman in prison. I want to get her lawyers disbarred. Uh, This is an outrage. And if it can happen to me, it could happen to you. It could happen to your daughter. It could happen to your uncle. It could happen to anybody. And I have the resources to fight back. Most people don't have the resources to fight back. And I'm condemned for fighting back because they say I'm victim shaming. Hey, I'm the victim here. I am the victim when in the Bible, Joseph was accused of having sex with Potiphar's wife. She right. wasn't the victim. He was the victim. I'm Joseph. The woman who has accused me is Potiphar's wife. Joseph went to prison. I'm not going to prison, but the woman who accused me is going to prison if the truth comes out. So uh, let's, let's drill down back at the, the same question. What happened, Ellen, sociologically over time where, don't confuse me with the facts, it's all visceral. It's all emotions. And if I point a finger, you're in the witness stand. I, what happened, you know, whether it was at the passing of time, something sociological, where suddenly there was a, an about turn and something like this can happen to a person whose who's character and integrity, I personally know well enough to know that this is uh, it's mm-hmm. unconscionable. Well, nobody knows me, believes it. Nobody has read my book. Right. Believe it. You should see the tweets that I get. Or today, there was an article in Above the Law saying, ah, see, Dershowitz is talking so much, he must be guilty. He's defending himself, he must be guilty. He should remain quiet. And if I remain quiet, they'd say, see, he's not. So he must be guilty. There's no innocence when it comes to the Me Too movement. I'm going to make a suggestion on the show I've never made before. But I think people the Me Too movement ought to create a court of seven or nine or five judges former justice of the Supreme Court, former federal judges, women, men, uh, African-American, white, Latino, a very diverse group of people to stand judgment. If somebody is accused under Me Too, there has to be a tribunal to which they can go, not necessarily a legal tribunal. Now, in most Me Too cases, there was a sexual relationship between the parties. Was it consensual? Wasn't it consensual? You know, what were the circumstances under which it occurred? My case is very different. I never met the woman, never heard of her. It's black and white. She simply made it up and I have the emails to prove it. But in order to prove it, I have to defame her and have her sue me, or she has to defame me and I have to sue her. I have to spend over a million dollars in legal fees to get vindication. Most people obviously can't afford to uh, do that. And so there should be a mechanism, a court, an informal court, where if someone is accused, they go to the court and they say, one day 
cross-examination of both sides and let the judges decide. They can have three verdicts. One, clearly he's guilty. Two, clearly he's innocent. Three, there's insufficient evidence and we can't come to a conclusion about innocence or guilt. So we have to go with the presumption of innocence, which operates in our society in general. Let there be some process so that people who have been accused, like me and others, can at least have an opportunity to present the evidence. In my case, the woman doesn't have a scintilla of evidence because, of course, she can't have a scintilla of evidence. It didn't happen. I have my travel records, her emails, her book manuscript, tape recording of her lawyer, tape recording of her best friend, admitting she made it up. She was pressured by her lawyers in order to get a billion dollars from Leslie Wexner. I have the most overwhelming case. No place to present it, except so, in a court of law, which will take me five years. I'm 82. Am I going to make it? They're hoping I'm not, but I'm going to. And I'm going to make sure she ends up in prison where she belongs. Look, she may have been a victim, but she's turned me into a victim. And being a victim of somebody else doesn't give you an excuse for making somebody else into a victim. So I, I, I want to share with you, because you shared something for the first time on the show. So I'm, um, I was told before we got on air, that what are the major networks when some of the sound bites of the show. And I want to, I want, as a friend of yours, I want you to, you know, feel comfortable mm-hmm. uh, that with your permission that we can share that soundbite. Of course. Okay. Look, I have never refused to answer a single question yep. from yep. Steph or on about this case. Why? I have nothing to hide. I am not one of these people who ever hugs or flirts. The reason I'm prepared to speak out about this, the reason I have made motions to have everything produced, hide nothing, redact nothing, is because I have nothing to hide about my private life. Nothing. So let, let, let's review. You were one of my professors at Harvard Law School. I learned that the onus of proof is on the party moving to, to, to make the claim. Here, it's completely yeah. gone on its head. Even if it was gone, I wouldn't mind having the burden on me. I'm happy to satisfy the burden. Right. You cannot satisfy the burden. If I had her on tape admitting she made it up, people would still believe her and not believe me. That's the way it works today. I have an article in uh, Newsweek magazine in which I say, where's the media? You know, when Joe Biden was accused, the media looked at the accusers and scrupulously went back in the background, looked at every inconsistency. When Justice Kavanaugh was accused, they looked at the accusers. In my case, not a single media has been willing to look at the evidence of my accusers' history of lying about prominent people. She's accused Ehud Barak. She's accused George Mitchell. She's accused Bill Richardson. She's accused Leslie Wexner. You name it. She's accused all of these people without a scintilla of evidence, and nobody has looked into it. On the other hand, the media has probed every aspect of my case. They went through my early days, my first marriage, all my my girlfriends between my first marriage and my second marriage. And you know what they came up with? The most damning possible thing. That when I was a young man, my wife and I used to skinny dip occasionally on a private beach in Martha's Vineyard early in the morning. And somebody once took a picture of it and it appeared in the Boston Herald. Alan, and that's if, my biggest sin. If that's your biggest vice, you're a saint, my friend. Uh-huh. Why is her... Why is, why is her credibility and character not an issue here? It's not. Nobody is willing to do it. Look, I spoke to a journalist the other day from a very prominent newspaper. I should name it, but I won't for the moment. Uh, okay. And I said, and she said, I believe you. This is terrible. I said, well, why won't you look into the credibility of my accuser? Yes. And she said, you want me to lose my job? 
Are you kidding? What if I were to find out that there are problems with her credibility? I said, there are problems. You're going to find that out. I'd get fired. Are you kidding? I'd be helping Jeffrey Epstein and hurting his victims. You know, when you say the word Epstein, it is so radioactive that people stop thinking and stop doing any investigative journalism. Well, I'm calling on investigative journalists. You know, I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal in which I demanded that the FBI investigate me. Who's ever heard of anybody asking for the FBI to investigate me? I want them to investigate me and my accuser and to indict one of us for perjury. And I'm willing to be subjected to that kind of an investigation. Of course, they won't do it. Uh, and that's why I want this court to be appointed. I think it's a terrific idea. Look into this issue. Maybe, maybe, I want to stay on this for a bit because obviously it's in the news. Tell us a little bit about the premise of guilt by accusation, your latest book, which I believe uh, folks can get on Kindle. Free. And you, for, for, for free. Well, free because I want people to read it. Everybody who's read it has agreed with me. Um, so, and all of our listeners can download Guilt by Accusation by Alan Dershowitz for free on Kindle. Free. Yeah, I've waived all my royalties. Amazing. I don't care about making money on this. I just want people to read it okay. and know the truth. So the premise is that today it's impossible to challenge any accuser, no matter how outrageous their statements are. I mean, we have cases, documented I'm cases, good. where women have made up stories to take revenge against their husbands, against their, their boyfriends for money. It's a small number of cases. Mostly accusations are true, but you can't just assume that all accusations are true because most accusations are true. And there has to be a mechanism for being able to challenge it. And that's why I wrote the book. And that's why I'm proposing this court uh, in which people can have an opportunity to challenge their accusers. And is the reason why, Ellen, if people if you share the facts with people, journalists and other folks who you know, have a sphere of influence, is the reason why they concerned to disseminate that and to be intellectually honest because they are scared of the repercussions for themselves? That's one. That's one. The other is they make more money. Netflix says we're doing a story on Jeffrey Epstein. Okay. And we want to be honest because we want to present your side of the story. We want to make sure everything you say is presented. They actually have a contract with me saying if I present them with the evidence, they will put it on the air and present my side of the story alongside her side of the story. That's Netflix promise. Um, They have a release in which they say they will not defame me. They will treat me fairly. So then they put it on the air. Absolutely refuse to run any of the things that I gave them, any of the documents I gave them about her history of lying. They made her seem totally credible. Let me give you another example. There's another woman named Sarah Ransom. This is a very interesting story. Sarah Ransom. They put her on the air as a credible witness. She looks credible. She's a very, very honest looking person. But I had given them dozens and dozens of emails. She wrote to the New York Post in 2016 in the run up to the last election in which she said to the journalist, she has videotapes of Hillary Clinton, sex tapes of Hillary Clinton having sex with as a pedophile. She says she has sex tapes of Bill Clinton, of Donald Trump, of Richard Branson. Oh she God. says in these emails, she's afraid that Hillary Clinton has put out a contract on her life by the CIA and that she's now working with the KGB to make sure the two pedophiles who are running for president don't get elected. News, uh, uh, Netflix has this material. I gave it 
the basic, I didn't give them the emails because they're under seal, but I gave them the story because I had gotten it from the reporter. They refused to run it. They present her as a credible person without telling the audience that the New York Post refused to report on her emails because it was so clear she was making them up. She ultimately admits to the New Yorker magazine that she invented the whole story and made it up. So Netflix knows that, and they don't put that on the air. Firstly, I mean, is Netflix's motive is what? Is, is it money, money, money. And I'm suing financial. Money, money, money. Let me say this. I'm suing Netflix for a lot of money, and okay. I'm going to give them charity. I'm going to create a fund for people who are falsely accused so that they will have the resources to fight back. Why, and why is that not, you know, widely disseminated? Why is that not better known, Alan? I have tried. Nobody wants to run that story. I have sent that story to every major newspaper in the country, every major media. Nobody wants to run the story. That's why I like to do these podcast interviews, because you'll run it. But no, we'll, we will run it. I wrote a piece um, saying truth testing Netflix, five Pinocchios. Couldn't get it published except in a very small website. It's unbelievable. I sent it to the Hollywood Reporter. I sent it to Variety. I sent it to uh, Los Angeles Times, to a range of newspapers, pointing these facts out. And they're facts. They're not disputable. They're facts. None of them would run it. Would you agree right here, and I'm telling you that what we're discussing is going to be run by a major network. Would you agree to an open discussion with the CEO of Netflix? Of course. Of course, with the CEO of Netflix or with the director of, of the film, anybody who's responsible. I guarantee you they will not accept that offer. Can, can, they will can, hide behind some claim that they don't talk about projects that are on there. Well, they're going to have to talk about it under oath in a court of law because I'm suing them. So you have no problem. Clearly, this is somewhat rhetorical for um for us to extend an open invitation to come on the show and have a discussion to dispel. Yeah. Okay. Just a simple question. Why did you not include this evidence? Why do you present people as honest when you know, because you have all the information that they have histories of calling Hillary Clinton a pedophile. We have all the information there um, and you wouldn't put it on the air. Why? And at, at the end of the day, this, is there any motive besides financial? Is there? Is yeah, they want to be politically correct. They don't want to be seen as being on the side of uh, anybody who's accused of uh, sexual impropriety. It's just a new form of McCarthyism. I'm old enough to remember when people wouldn't put people on the air who had any connection to communism or left wing. Uh, they just didn't want trouble. Look, the 92nd Street Y, where I have spoken. For 30 years, I was the second most popular speaker after Elie Wiesel, most frequent speaker, has canceled me and won't allow me to speak because I'm accused. They said to a mutual friend, we know he's innocent. We know he didn't do it, but we don't want trouble. That's exactly what happened during the McCarthy period. People were saying, we know he's not a communist. We don't want trouble from Joe McCarthy or Roy Cohn or any of those people. So let's pick up on the concept of McCarthyism. It seems to me, and I, I, I speak on campus pretty frequently, and the bastion of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, at least you know, the, the party line 30, 40 years ago, has morphed into a quasi-McCarthyism of another sort today on campus. I mean, um, is it just the Ivy League schools, Alan, or is this something that you, that you feel is ubiquitous on, on university campuses where... 
I've probably spoken to more universities than I'm sure. anyone else, um, certainly over 100 over the years, uh, all over the world. And it's changed dramatically. Uh, you know, the students used to sit at their edge of the seats saying, yeah, I really want to learn. I really right. want to hear. Now they sit there with their middle finger yeah. up and um, their hands on their ears saying, we want to hear from you. You're white, you're male, you're old. You've been accused. You're pro-Israel. What, what can we learn from you? My God, you're, you're privileged. You have white privilege, right? I was <laughs> turned down every single Wall Street law firm, though I was first in my class and editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, turned down by 32 out of 32 Wall Street firms. That's the kind of privilege I had growing up as a poor Jewish kid in Brooklyn. It's unbelievable. So I, I, I think I, while I cannot empathize, uh, I can sympathize, but I can't empathize with, the, with uh, something which clearly is factually incorrect and how it must feel, the closest that I can, can sort of relate is when talking about Israel. And the facts are completely wrong. And I sit down with them and explain why this small country, the size of New Jersey in the Middle East, is not this pariah nation, and it's a democratic country, and women have more. And after going through all the facts, it's, Anthony, thank you very much, but we hate Israel. Yeah, we don't care. We don't care. And I, you know, I, I've never been in a situation where I've understood better what Israelis must feel like when they set out the facts, you know. They were willing to accept the tiny state, two-state solution in 1937, 1938, 1948, 1967, 1990, 2000, 2001, 2008, and they're still willing to sit down and negotiate. The Palestinians who never miss an opportunity to miss an Black Lives Matter. I do support the concept Black Lives Listen. Matter, but I will have nothing to do with an organization that has in its platform an anti-Semitic uh, uh, lie. And uh, I want to look for other organizations that support racial justice. You know, just because you do some good doesn't give you a license to be an anti-Semite or to be a racist or a homophobe or a sexist. Right. Uh, there's zero tolerance for that kind of bigotry. So here's how I'd like to wrap up the show, Alan. I didn't, obviously, we didn't plan, and I didn't realize what you were going to say, but I, I, I happen to feel that you do terrific work, Thank and you. I also feel that you have tremendous courage and tremendous intestinal fortitude uh, not to necessarily do what people like and be proverbially politically correct, but you have immutable principles, which is a, very, which is a rarity today. So I want to say the following, and I want to do the best that we can. And we have an interesting sphere of influence because there are some pretty influential folks that subscribe to the show. As an uh, observant Jew, one of the things in studying the Talmud, as you well know, is the attempt to find the truth. What I'm hearing you say, Alan, is you have no problem people doing a deep dive in this Netflix debacle so the truth will come out. Absolutely, yeah. So I, I will want to say publicly, and we'll do what we can, we will publicly make an overture. Who would be the right person at Netflix to sit with you in a room and let the public decide? Well, the director of the film, uh, who was the one who interviewed me and who made the promises to me, and fortunately I have a witness to the promises, 
and the producer, any responsible person who could who knows the facts, I'd be happy I just to want Our listeners debate. want to hear what the representation or the promise was from the Netflix folks to you that clearly was breached. What, what was if that? If you give us the evidence that you claim you have of her emails, of her manuscript, of the tape recording of her lawyer, of the tape recording of her best friend, if you give us that information, we will put it on the air. They made me that explicit promise. I have it in emails, so they can't deny it. Then they made me another promise. I challenged her. I said, I want, I challenge you to accuse me on the air because she had never accused me on the air and I wanted to have an opportunity to possibly sue her for defamation in an open and shut case. But I said, I'm gonna issue this challenge, but if she accepts it, you have to promise me that I have an opportunity to respond to her. They did not. They broke their promises. They breached their contract. They defame me. And Netflix will be a much, much better station when I own it. And <laughs> them for the value of my reputation, which they have tried very hard to trash. And I'm going to fight back. I will never, ever remain silent. And uh, when I die, my wife will continue to speak up on my behalf. When she dies, my children and then my grandchildren. We will never ever let go of this issue until this woman is in jail and her lawyers are disbarred and the public understands that this is a woman who made up the story. Netflix presented her made up story unfairly and uncritically. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. Just think about it. Suddenly at the last decades of your life, the last years of your life, to have to spend all of your trying, trying to regain your reputation from a false charge because one woman with a long history of making up stories about prominent people, she made up stories about Al Gore and Tipa Gore and Bill Clinton and others. Because she decided to make up a story, my life has been changed dramatically. That's just not fair. And I'm going to fight. So that. let's end this, Alan, by coming full circle. So here's my promise to you. The one thing that is priceless to all of us, that is sacrosanct, that we all want to leave this world with is our good name. Right. I've known you for a long time, Alan. You deserve your good name. You've done terrific work. It takes a very unique person, flies in the face of any identity politics to be in the White House with our, my former classmate, President Obama and President Trump, because you're a person who focuses on principles and not people. We will do what we can with the folks that we're involved with uh, to, to make the following known. Netflix explicitly breached something not only that was represented, but apparently was memorialized. Right. In emails, right. It and seems, oral conversations, both. It seems that their motive was purely financial and because they need to placate certain, uh, the party line. But in so doing, they have, they are they are tainting the reputation of a person whose character should not, doesn't deserve to be tainted. We will invite them onto the show. I can't promise how far this will get, but we will do our best because Alan, you deserve it. You're a good man. You're one of the most outstanding champions of Israel. You had an important part in my life on the lives of many continued success. And I'm hoping, I sincerely am hoping that this little podcast might be ignite a spark that will be the beginning of clearing your name and hopefully for people to realize that you know facts should supersede 
party lines, how we feel, and let's focus on being people of substance. No, I appreciate all of that, but I just want to end by saying if it can happen to me, it can happen to you. So this is not about me. This is about your children, your grandchildren, Mm -hmm. your your aunt, your niece, your nephew. And so always be on the side of truth. And I'm on the side of truth. And I live by truth. And I will continue to advocate truth. I know that, Alan, it's an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for the time. And hopefully, hopefully good things will come. And your, your good name, which you deserve, will be restored and continue success. And thanks again, Alan.